Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Ordinary Equality listeners. This is Jenny Kaplan, the show's EP. I'm on today with Kate and Jamia for an emergency podcast to talk through the latest news. In case you missed it, last night, May 2nd, it's now May 3rd, Politico published a draft majority opinion that had been leaked from the Supreme Court. It revealed that the courts voted to strike down Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 ruling that made abortion federally protected. This is something central to a woman's life, to her dignity. It's a decision that she must make for herself. From Kansas, Kentucky, and North Carolina, dedicated women marched. Abortion is fast becoming the new political fault line. Alabama's governor has signed the nation's strictest abortion ban into law. The Human Life Protection Act outlaws the procedure except when the mother's life is at risk. This bill is not about pro-life or the right to life. This bill is about control. We will not go back. And we, the people of the United States of America, documented or undocumented, are having abortions, legal or not. This court will never stop us. Hello, Kate and Jamia. How are we feeling? Exhausted. Yeah, I just kept thinking this morning, like, the new normal is constantly exhaustion and, like, emotional peril. It's so true. It's I was thinking about the Adam Sower book, The Cruelty is the Point. And even though we know that the cruelty is a point, it still is biting every time they stick the knife in deeper. And although we knew this was likely to come, the leak was a trigger. <laughs> um, and, you know, so it's, it's, it's both, I'm exhausted because I was up weeping last night. And I also had this moment of, you know, texting with friends and colleagues and people who were also up saying, can you sleep? I can't sleep. But then seeing my husband sleeping and then being mad that he's sleeping at 1230 AM, you know, sort of irrationally, but also the metaphor, I mean, it cannot be missed. That he can sleep through it, even though he's horrified like we are. He could sleep. I could not sleep. You know, people like us <laughs> have been talking and podcasting about this you know, outcome for months and years and decades in some cases. But actually reading the words that Roe and Casey have to be overturned explicitly in the decision was still, you know, hit me like a ton of bricks and was still impactful. Like the thing that you feared and and tried to warn everybody about 
is actually happening. And that even for the most seasoned, (laughs) hardened abortion activist out there still stings. So I want to talk about all of these things. Let's start with the leak itself. It feels like this was an unprecedented thing to happen in an unprecedented case. The fact that this draft was leaked, especially it feels like the Supreme Court is notoriously buttoned up. So what's your take on what went down and how this will affect debates on already a very intense topic? Yeah, my take is there's no way this was leaked by a heroic clerk uh, who's progressive. They wouldn't have had the draft. They wouldn't have had access to the draft. They wouldn't have had the ability to leak it. Um, This, in my opinion, was definitely an inside job. Uh, I think the intention, you know, is could be pretty obvious uh, that they wanted to leak it in advance of the actual decision coming down to inoculate people. So they leak it two two months in advance. They give us, you know, two months to freak out. And then when the actual decision comes out, they like slightly water down the language. So it's A, it wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. And B, uh, we knew this was coming. And so I think it's like, you know, they're evil geniuses and they, they, every single move is intentional. Every single move is planned out and has been planned out in a, for a very long time. And so I think this is in line with that. It makes sense to me that the decision, uh, was linked by them in order to curb the tide of, of rage. It's really interesting too, to find out. And I wasn't aware of this before, last night that the original Roe v. Wade case ruling was leaked also. And something I have been wondering about, how do we best use these two months? Because what Kate says is really important, that we've seen throughout history that they continue to do things that keep us in a constant trauma loop so that we eventually burn out and crash or fall into a sense of lethargy or demoralization and can't mobilize at the same to the same degree. And we saw that in four years of Trump, <laughs> that that was a big part of the strategy, the sort of shock and awe campaign of emotional warfare and psychological warfare. So I have, I've thought about that also as a part of this. Yeah. Um, I also think that <sighs> In addition to the shock and awe tactics uh, that they that are tried and true for them, uh, it's important to see the long game because they always do. <laughs> so this is not like accidental. This is not you know uh, occasional for them. This has been an intentional long term strategy that we've talked about on the podcast. Um, but I think it's important to know that this is also not the end. Uh, the fall of Roe is is for them conditioned in order for them to get what they really want, which is a federal ban on abortion. So a lot, I hear a lot of people talking about like, oh, California and New York and oh, give to these abortion funds and oh, they'll be overrun and oh, rich women will always be able to get abortions. And I'm like, wow, people are really underestimating them uh, and and their long-term goals. Like their long-term goal is so that people in New York and California also cannot get abortions. They're not like going to be satisfied with people traveling to the coasts. 
That's 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 not part of their plan. Their plan Roe getting rid of Roe is one domino in in their in their long-term uh you know strategy and it is the thing that is keeping them from having a federal ban. So once they once Roe is struck down in June as we have now seen explicitly that it will be uh then they will try to win the house uh, and the senate and pass a federal ban on abortion so that you can't get one in new mexico you can't get one in california you can't get one in new york you can't get one anywhere that is their long-term goal i think that there are probably a lot of people who are holding out maybe a little bit of hope that this draft could potentially be changed, that someone is persuadable. Is that a real thing? (laughs) What is the likelihood that that actually happens, that this draft is just a draft and it turns out this doesn't happen? I have been thinking about this a lot, uh, and it became a part of my obsession after 2016 when there were these campaigns for a lot of people who were using division as their buzzword around healing division with unity, because in my assessment as a Black woman from the South, they couldn't handle the fact that their Uncle Bobby, who was nice to them, was actually a bad human being with sociopathic tendencies when it came to people that they didn't see as human (laughs) or as fully human as they are. And I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but I think there's this penchant of denial. Sometimes people feel if they want to hold on to their privilege, um, if they don't know how to let go of it, or if they feel like they aren't willing to really see reality for what it is, and they're sort of stuck into a delusion for what they would like reality to be. And so I think that there's a part of that that I have been dealing with since 2016 of seeing people say, oh, you know, they aren't racist. They just make racist comments or they're not a misogynist because they were nice to me on Tuesday, but they did sexually assault someone, you know, those kinds of things. And hearing that over and over, locker room talk, um, articles where people would say racially charged language instead of racist, anything to kind of dilute the reality of how some people are okay with undermining other people's humanity and politicizing other people's existence to the point of damage. And so I feel like we have a little bit of that here, that because people are not wanting to deal with what it means to really say that Oh, we've elected a person who, I mean, now we've elected multiple persons who have been elected to this court after women have testified about being abused by them. (laughs) And this is who they are. We have elected people to this court who have said that they are fine and complicit with racism. I mean, sort of seeing how Justice Roberts, for example, is being painted now as a voice of moderate reason when I think about the fact that he was okay with uh, putting a young Black child in um, handcuffs because they ate a French fry on the Metro. (laughs) Um, It's just an interesting sort of revision. And I think it's in alignment with that, this idea that they want to find a silver lining somewhere. They want to find a kindling of goodness because it helps their love and light worldview. And I don't know that that's going to get us free. In fact, I know it's not. (laughs) And so uh, not wanting to be dour because I do believe that change and transformation is important. And I do believe in hope. 
I don't think we get there based on what we've seen in history without organizing or as Frederick Douglass taught us that power concedes nothing without demand. So it's just something I'm thinking a lot about and how to move those people who are kind of still stuck there. They want to believe that a the good hero is going to come in and save us all. And what we've learned from the COVID response and from our government, what we've learned from so many things that have happened is that we've got to learn how to make certain decisions and discern and govern ourselves. That's the big takeaway I have learned since 2016 is to follow my own moral compass and that of the collective community that I trust and find the people to elect in power who align more closely with those values. And I just think it's hard because I feel like there are a lot of people who feel uncomfortable with that because they think it challenges the way the system's built. Um, and reconciling that is challenging for them. Yeah. I think that, Kate, that sort of goes back to what you were saying about the specific language in the document. I mean, the language itself in this leaked decision is really intense. I was surprised by some of the vitriol of the decision that it's that Alito calls Rose reasoning exceptionally weak and says it was egregiously wrong from the start. And it seems like perhaps what what you're saying is that they're playing into this this idea that the those in favor of choice are going to look for a silver lining in June when this comes out, that we're not going to be able to keep up the momentum. So how do we fight against that? How do we make sure that that doesn't happen? So kind of like Jamia said, when people tell you who they are, you should believe them. <laughs> and we have this decision. So we know who they are. It's explicit. It's written out. It's it's not mincing words. Um, and so even if the language is slightly watered down in June, like we should believe them. We should we should understand that this is their long term goal. We should understand that even if they water down the language uh, so that it's more palatable, palatable politically, the effect of what is going to happen is to completely eliminate role. Um, but I think going to what she was talking about, about institutions, uh, we can't we cannot believe in, uphold, or participate in institutions that violate our human rights. Um, and, and there's a difference between a human right and a constitutional right. A constitutional right comes from a piece of paper. A human right comes from being a human. And access to abortion care is a human right. So it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. It doesn't matter what the Constitution says. Abortion is a human right. And we will continue to get abortions and help people seek abortion care, whether legal or not. So let me repeat that. We will keep getting abortions, whether legal or not. This court cannot stop us. It will not stop us. Uh, and, and it becomes now a community responsibility to provide that care. We need an immediate response where everyone, everyone, commits to aiding and abetting abortion. It will not be legal in, in some places immediately starting in June and then perhaps nationwide at some point. That is their goal. So we need to commit to aiding and abetting abortion immediately. We need to keep, commit to funding clinics wherever they stay open. We need to commit to um, you know helping people get the care they need. So that's abortion funds. 
helping people travel when where necessary, even if that's outside of this country, which at some point it may be. Um, and so I think we really need to grapple with the legitimacy of these institutions. I was on a call the other night with Jamie Raskin, who was also, has also been on the podcast, uh, and he said, we need to fall out of love with the Supreme Court. And that's a, a really a lot coming from him. He's a constitutional legal professor. Uh, he is a member of Congress. He is he's really just like a constitutional enthusiast. You know, he loves the Constitution. And for him to say we have to fall out of love with the Supreme Court as progressives, um, I think is a clarion call. We just we need to abandon the idea that what they dictate dictates our behavior. It does not. We will continue to get abortions. Um, and, and then I think there's a parallel strategy. So that's in the immediate aftermath of, of Roe being overturned, which again, they've explicitly said they will do. Um, and then the long term, we need to have a long game. Like, what is our long game? We never have a long game. We're like, oh, no, oh, no, the sky is falling. The sky is falling. No, we need to have a long game. And as we have said so many times, uh, the long game is changing the wording of the Constitution. What we are losing is unenumerated rights, not just the right to privacy, which covers abortion, but we're losing um, the, they want to take explicitly in the decision, they call into question Lawrence v. Texas, which legalizes same-sex relationships. The, the Alito specifically and explicitly calls into question Obergefell, legalizing same-sex marriage. So these, these things are on the chopping block. We are losing unenumerated rights. And so we need to enumerate them. We need to enumerate equality in the Constitution. Are there other examples? It feels to me like the other examples of the court overturning a major decision like this in such a scathing way or just generally overturning such an established decision. The only examples I can think of are in favor of progress. How do we sort of, I guess some of this goes to what you're saying of needing to fall out of love with the Supreme Court, but how do you, are there other examples you can think of of the other way around? Or how do we sort of think about this in the broader perspective of the history of the Supreme Court? So one thing that I was talking about with a friend who is more moderate than I am on these things and, you know, has a lot of angst about people who voted third party uh, was this issue of the Electoral College. You know, I've been hearing a lot from some folks that, oh, well, we wouldn't have been here if people had elected Hillary. And my viewpoint is that, one, people did elect Hillary. The popular vote elected Hillary. The system is what is flawed. The Electoral College emerged out of slavery politics and policies that benefit cishet white male landowners, just like Roe v. Wade benefits cishet white male landowners. And they are using a document created in 1776 with all of the cultural and political conditions they had then to try to bring us back to that moment because they see that they need to grasp back into backlash and regression in order to continue to maintain their unearned privilege and domination. So from my perspective, what this moment is really allowing us to talk about with this young generation is what are we going to do in the next 20 to 30 years in these lifetime appointments with a new voting base, rather than maligning and undermining this base, but a new voting base that has been disenfranchised economically with student loans um, that uh, has 
been periled with gun violence and government that hasn't done enough to make their schools safe. I mean, the list goes on. That forced birth being thrust upon people with no child care leave, no paid six days at a federal level, black maternity health rates. I mean, I could just keep going on and on. There's so many. It's like a grab bag of reasons why. But this is just forcing people who were not yet awake to the many, many different intersecting reasons why we need to come together and have multi-issue strategy and uh, move away from a single-issue approach, we'll realize that these systems need to be re-envisaged, which is why I love that we're talking about this on ordinary equality, because with the ERA, uh, I also believe it'll be a way to bring in more younger voices into that space because this is such a clear illustration of how this is this generation's fight too for so many reasons. So I'm not excited. I'm outraged, furious, but also looking forward to the fuel that this is going to give to a new generation as leadership begins to transition and some of the people who are causing the problems will no longer be at the table. So I think it's going to be a long fight. I think it's going to be grisly, but I do have hope that this next generation, the kids are all right. And I think, I think it is important, like Jenny, like you pointed out, that things can't go backwards. <laughs> uh, we tend to think like, oh, the moral arc bends towards justice. I don't think that's true. You think of other countries, um, you know, Iran, uh, where women walked around freely and, you know, participated in civic life. And then there was a complete backlash. You know, you in your lifetime, you can have something and it can be completely stripped away. And so I think it's important to put that in the context of what's happened in other countries. That's what's happening in our country now. Um, but on the converse, what's happening in other countries with abortion right now is the opposite. Um, you have Ireland uh, legalizing abortion, you have Chile, you have Argentina, you have Mexico, you have all of these countries uh, in, in you know, the past year or two years completely legalizing abortion, uh, you know, Catholic majority countries, countries, very conservative uh, countries making progress on abortion rights. And, and the way that they've done it in those countries should inspire us. Uh, the way that women have marched in the streets, the way that women refuse to comply, you know, in Chile and Argentina, they're burning down cathedrals. Uh, they are like literally lighting things on fire. Uh, and, and I think it's important for us to take from their example, again, that we do not comply with unjust laws, that we become ungovernable, uh, and that the Supreme Court realizes that by handing down this decision, they did not get what they want. What they got was an, an unquenchable fire of outrage against the limitation on our human rights. And, and we've seen that in other countries and it works and it can work here too. I'd love for each of you to give me like, what's your number one top thing that you want people to take away from this, like to remember in this moment and then I want to talk about some tangible actions. But for each of you, what's the what's the number one thing you want people to really hear right now? I fear that there's a lot of energy, but that perhaps we lack focus. There's precedent in Portugal and several other countries of what can happen when people who are on the progressive side of things come together to fight a common foe and then figure out the rest later. 
And with Portugal, that also ended up having benefits for reproductive rights and justice. And I look forward to a time, and I hope uh, with the next generation, as we continue to move forward, that we will have that opportunity to bring that here, where we can come together in common coalition, learn to compromise better, have more solidarity, come into formation, if I may quote Beyonce, and then work together to figure out how to work out the parts where we disagree and to really focus on the 80% of things that we do agree on as the impetus to come together against a deadly common foe. And thank you. I I hate to follow uh, Jamia ever uh, because she's always got the perfect thing to say. Um, I will just add that uh, people talk a lot about going back before row or pre-row. We're not in pre-row. We have advances in technology, advances in communication. We have pills. Uh, pills are easy to get. Pills are easy to take up to, t- to you know, 10 to 12 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, you can take the pills at home. You can self-manage your abortion. So it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be dire in that we're going back to this like back alley coat hanger situation that people keep alluding to. There's no need for that. We're beyond that. We're beyond that with technology. We're beyond that with communication. We're beyond that with networks. We don't have to do that. Um, and we won't do that. What we'll do is get people the pills they need, uh, get people the education they need, and continue to provide uh, you know, uh, inpatient abortions for those who need them, no matter where we have to go. Um, but I just think it's important for people not to think like, okay, we're going back to 1972. No, we're not going back to 1972. It's 2022. We have the technology. We have everything we need to take care of ourselves. What are two things that the average listener can do right now? (laughs) Like if people, I think people really want to take some specific action. What are a couple of things that you would recommend? Donate to abortion funds. Go to abortionfunds.org and donate. I donated in memory of my mom, who I know funded abortions for her loved ones who needed it supported. And I believe that that act and the compassion, but also the power in it is really impactful powerful. So donate to abortion funds, serve as a clinic escort, donate to the Center for Reproductive Rights, fighting these cases around the world, and say the word abortion. Help end the stigma. Uh, not to be a pill pusher here, but I would help people understand uh, that that medication abortion exists and how easy it is to get the pills. So you have uh, that you have Jane, you have Plan C pills, you have ShareAbortionPills.info, you have Women on the Web, you have many resources to help people get accurate information about pills and how to get them. So even if you are not a person who could get pregnant. Uh, You should know because someone might come to you and say, you know, I'm pregnant. What do I do? You need to know where to get pills, where to get them help, where to get them uh, a doctor who can treat them uh, no matter where you live. So that's the first thing. Find out about pills. Mifepristone and misoprostol are the two pills. Just just learn about those. Uh, You know, Google oral uh, misoprostol and mifepristone just so you know what they are and how to get them. That's that's I think the most concrete thing that people can do in abortion. In addition to, of course, donating funds, um, I would also go to keep our clinics. 
Um, keep our clinics is important because even in the places where it row won't immediately fall, they, those clinics are going to be overrun. They already are. If you can't get an abortion in Texas, they'll go to Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, all of those appointments are going to be full. It's going to be very, very difficult. And and we overnight, we cannot get abortion providers. Like there's not just going to be a huge amount of doctors who are going to know how to and be willing to pre perform abortions. Um, but we need to fund those clinics. We need to keep those clinics open. Um, so that would be my top two is, is shareabortionpill.info uh, to learn about how to get and, and distribute abortion pills. Um, and then the second one is keep our clinics um, to keep those clinics open because pills only work up to 12 weeks and a lot of people don't know they're pregnant until then. So we will always need clinics to provide abortions. Great. I think that's really helpful. I have one final uh, and then I'll let you go because I'm sure you're both, I know you're both extremely busy. Feels like momentum is certainly not in favor of Democrats at the moment. Do you think that this leak and the decision more broadly will galvanize people leading up to the midterms or is it more like this is a nail in the coffin for Democrats? I think this is our moment to determine that. Like this is the decisions we make right now will determine that. Nobody who is living in the reality we are living in can tell us that these parties are the same. Nobody who saw what happened last night, who has seen what has happened with voters' rights, who's seen what they have done, how they have been building this up, how this has been in the making for decades, nobody who sees the fascism adjacentness of all of this can deny that there is a clear difference. You may not like everything about how the current Democratic Party is being run. I can agree with you on that. We can be down with that, but there is a difference. So what I hope is that this is our opportunity right now to really help drive that home. And for everyone listening, register voters. Vote, 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 and help turn out the vote in November. That is another important thing that we can do and help people get educated about what is really at stake. Yeah, and I think, you know, there, it's the Democratic Party isn't just like a vending machine where you like put in a vote and you get out whatever, you know, that the, the, they're going to give you. you. We can influence what the party does and decides and acts and how they, you know, if people are out in the streets if people are refusing to comply with these laws, if people are demanding of their legislators that they codify Roe, those things will happen. So if you're a Democrat, you are the party. You get to decide where the party goes. You get to decide how the party responds. Um, and I think in addition to voting, uh, you can also really influence how your specific legislators fall down on this issue. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate you taking the time on especially on this very chaotic day. So thank you again. Thank you. And more soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.